Chapter 6 Arizona's Yesterday by John Caddy Bassawoon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tony Passante. A Frontier Businessman. The chip of chisel, hump of saw, the stones, the progress laid, the city grew, and helped by its law, men many fortunes made. Song of the City by T. Burgess. A Phoenix man was in Patagonia recently, and I don't say he was a typical Phoenix man, commented in a superior tone on the size of the town. Why, he said, as if he clinched the argument, Phoenix would make ten Patagonias. And then some, I assented, but, Sonny, I built the third house in Phoenix, did you know that? And I burnt Indian grain fields in the Salt River Valley long before anyone ever thought of building a city there. Even a big city has had some time to be a small one. That settled it. The Phoenix gentleman said no more. I told him only the exact truth when I said that I had built the third house in Phoenix. After I had started the Wickenburg restaurant came rumors that a new city was to be started in the Fertile Salt River Valley between Sacaton and Prescott, some forty or fifty miles north of the former place. Stories came that men had tilled the land of the valley and had found it would grow almost anything, as indeed it has since been found that any land in Arizona will do, providing the water is obtained to irrigate it. One of Arizona's most wonderful phenomena is the sudden greening of the sandy stretches after a heavy rain. One day everything is sun-dried brown as far as the eye can see. Every arroyo is dry, the very cactus seems shriveled, and the deep blue of the sky gives no promise of any relief. Then in the night, thunderclouds roll up from the painted hills. A tropical deluge resembling a cloudburst falls, and in the morning, lo, where was yellow sand parched from months of drought is now spreading green grass. It is a marvelous transformation, a miracle never to be forgotten by one who has seen it. However, irrigation is absolutely necessary to till the soil in most districts of Arizona, though in some sections of the state dry farming has been successfully resorted to. It has been said that Arizona has more rivers and less water than any state in the Union, and this is true. Many of these are rivers only in the rainy season, which in the desert generally comes about the middle of July and lasts until early fall. Others are what is known as sinking rivers, flowing above ground for parts of their course and as frequently sinking below the sand to reappear further along. The Sonoida, upon which Patagonia is situated, is one of these disappearing rivers, the water coming up out of the sand about a half mile from the main street. The big rivers, the Colorado, the Salt, the Upper Gila, and the San Pedro, run the year round, and there are several smaller streams in the more fertile districts that do the same thing. The larger part of the Arizona desert is not barren sand, but fertile silt and adobe, needing only water to make it the best possible soil for farming purposes. Favored by a mild winter climate, the Salt River Valley can be made to produce crops of some kind each month in the year. Fruits in the fall, vegetables in the winter season, grains in spring, and alfalfa, the principal crop, throughout the summer. A succession of crops may oftentimes be grown during the year on one farm, so that irrigated lands in Arizona yield several times the produce obtainable in the eastern states. Alfalfa may be cut six or seven times a year with a yield as much as ten tons to the acre. Finest Egyptian cotton, free from the boll weevil scourge, 
may also be grown successfully and is fast becoming one of the staple products of the state. Potatoes, strawberries, pears, peaches, and melons from temperate climates and citrus fruits, sour gum grains, and date palms from subtropical regions give some idea of the range of crops possible here. Many farmers from the eastern and southern states and from California, finding this out, begin to take up land, dig irrigating ditches, and make homes in Arizona. Fifteen or twenty pioneers had gone to the Salt River Valley while I was at Wickenburg, and there had taken up quarter sections on which they raised, chiefly, barley, wheat, corn, and hay. Little fruit was also experimented in. Some of the men who were on the ground at the beginning, I remember to have been Dennis and Murphy, Tom Gray, Jack Walters, Johnny, George, George Monroe, Joe Fugit, Jack Swilling, Patterson, the Parkers, the Sorrels, the Fenters, and a few others whose names I do not recall. A town site had been laid out, streets surveyed, and before long it became known that the territory had a new city, the name of which was Phoenix. The story of the way in which the name Phoenix was given to the city that in future days was to become the metropolis of the state is interesting. When the minor excitement was over, I decided to move to the new Salt River town site, and soon after my arrival, there attended a meeting of citizens gathered together to name the new city. Practically every settler in the valley was at this meeting, which was destined to become historic. Among those present was a Frenchman named Daryl Duper, or Dupierre as his name has sometimes been written, who was a highly educated man and had lived in Arizona for a number of years. When the question of naming the town site came up, several suggestions were offered, among them being Salt City, Heracropolis, and others. Duper rose to his feet and suggested the city be called Phoenix, because, he explained, the Phoenix was a bird of beautiful plumage and exceptional voice, which lived for 500 years, and then after chanting its death song, prepared a charnel house for itself and was cremated, after which a new and glorified bird arose from the ashes to live a magnificent existence forever. When Duper finished his suggestion and explanation, the meeting voted on the names and the Frenchman's choice was decided upon. Phoenix, it has been ever since. Before I had been to Phoenix many days, I commenced the building of a restaurant, which I named the Capitol Restaurant. The Capitol was then at Prescott, having been moved from Tucson, but my name evidently must have been prophetic, for the capital city of Arizona is now none other than Phoenix, which at the present day probably has the largest population of the state, over 20,000. Soon I gained other interest in Phoenix beside the restaurant. The capital made me much money, and I invested what I did not spend in having a good time in various other enterprises. I went into the butcher business with Steel and Copeland, built the first bakery in Phoenix. I staked two men to a ranch north of the city, from which I later on proceeded to flood the territory with sweet potatoes. I was the first man, by the way, to grow sweet potatoes in Arizona. I built a saloon and dance hall. And in this, naturally, was my quickest turnover. I am not an apologist, least of all for myself. And as this is the true story of a life I believe to have been exceptionally varied, I think that in it should be related to things I did, which might be considered bad nowadays, as well as the things I did, which, by the same token present-day civilization, may consider good. I may relate, therefore, that for some years I was known as the largest liquor dealer in the territory, as well as one of the shrewdest hands at cards. Although I employed men to do the work, often players would insist on my dealing the money deck or laying down the faro layout for them. I played for big stakes, too, bigger stakes than people play for nowadays in the West. 
Many times I have sat down with the equivalent of thousands of dollars in chips and played them all away, only to regain them again without thinking it anything particularly unusual. As games go, I was considered lucky for a gambler. Though not superstitious, I believed in this luck of mine, and this is probably the reason that it held good for so long. If of late various things, chiefly the mining depression, have made my fortunes all to the bad, I am no man to whine at the inevitable. I can take my epicac along with the next man. There were few men in the old days in Phoenix, or indeed the entire territory, who did not drink liquor, and lots of it. In fact, it may be said that the entire fabric of the territory was constructed on liquor. The pioneers were most of them whiskey fiends, as were the gamblers. By this I am not defending the liquor traffic. I have sold more liquor than any man in Arizona over the bar in my lifetime, but I voted dry at the last election. I adhere to my belief that a whiskeyless Arizona will be the best for our children and our children's children. During my residence in Phoenix, Darrell Duper, the man who had christened the town, became one of my best friends. He kept a post and trading store at Desert Station, at which place was the only water to be found between Phoenix and Wickenburg, if I remember correctly. The station made him wealthy. Duper was originally Count Duper, and came of a noted aristocratic French family. His forefathers were, I believe, prominent in the court of Louis XIV. When a young man, he committed some foolhardy act in France and was banished by his people who sent him a monthly remittance on condition that he get as far away from his home as he could and stay there. To fulfill the terms of this agreement, Duperry came to Arizona among the early pioneers and soon proved that he had the stuff of a real man in him. He learned English and Americanized his name to Duper. He engaged in various enterprises and finally started Desert Station, where he made his fortune. He was a curious character as he became older. Sometimes he would stay away from Phoenix for several months, and then one day he would appear with a few thousand dollars, more or less, spend every cent of it in treating the boys in my house, and blow back home again, generally in my debt. He used to sing La Marseille. It was the only song he knew, and after the first few drinks, would solemnly mount a table, sing a few verses of the magnificent revolutionary song, call on me to do likewise, and then treat the house. Often he did this several times each night, and as treating the house invariably cost at least thirty dollars, and he was an inveterate gambler, it will be seen that in one way or another I managed to secure considerable of old Duper's fortune. His partiality to Marseille leads me to the belief that he was banished for participation in one of the French revolutions, but this I cannot state positively. One occasion I remember that I was visiting with Duper and we made a trip together somewhere, Duper leaving his cook in charge. When we returned, nobody noticed us and I happened to look through a window before entering the house. Hastily, I beckoned to Duper. The Frenchman's cook was sitting on his bed with a pile of money, the day's takings, in front of him. He was dividing the pile into two halves. Taking one bill off the pile, he would lay it to one side and say, This is for Duper. Then he'd take the next bill, lay it in another spot, and say, This one is for me. We watched him through the window unnoticed until he came to the last $10 bill. It was odd. The cook deliberated a few moments, finally put the bill on top of the pile he had reserved for himself. Then Duper, whose face had been a study in emotions, could keep still no longer. Hey there, he yelled. Play fair, play fair. Divvy up that ten spot. 
What happened afterwards to that cook, I do not remember. Duper was good sport. End of chapter 6